Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on the issues that have confronted the media in recent weeks. Brought to you by some folks who used to be active purveyors of news and information and now have a chance to take some pot shots from the sidelines. We're happy to welcome you. My name is Rex Smith. I was the editor of the Times Union. The former editor of the Saratogian is here, Barbara Lombardo, an executive editor of the Saratogian and the uh, Troy Record. Ira Fussfeld, longtime former publisher of the Daily Freeman and Associated Publications in Kingston, New York, and he was the editor and sports writer and sports editor before that. Alan Shartok, the former publisher of the Fire Island Gazette. (laughs) Uh, no, the Fire no, Island. No, no, no. no. You always <laughs> mess it up. The Fire Island Sun. Try to. It was amazing. Oh yeah, news. yeah. We competed with the Times, don't you know? Really, the Times. That would be uh, what the Ocean Beach Times. Is that right? <laughs> Got to get it right here. Anyway, Alan is still very present as the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, and we're going to ask Alan for his thoughts first to start us off about this, no. because here's something that's interesting that we. We've talked about before. A new survey by this wonderful group, actually, Public Religion Research Institute, says most of the country blames white supremacist groups for the January 6th uprising, as well as Donald Trump and the conservative media that spreads information, except Republicans, generally speaking, blame Antifa and other left-wing activists for January 6th, which, of course, is not true, and believe the majority that President Biden, in fact, lost election. So, Alan, you probably see evidence of this yourself, and now you're going to give us a solution. You're going to tell us, what the hell do we do about this in this country? Well, you know what? I think we have to fight it out. In other words, I think what's happened in this country is that what I would call the former white majority has decided they're going to hold on to power no matter what they do because they don't want to lose it. They don't want the upcoming groups, the people of color, the people who are tan, the people who are black, the progressives to do their thing. And so what they're going to try to do is hold on for dear life no matter what. Now, the Trump lies and all the things that went with it are still there in that Republican group. Remember, Rex and group, that on January 6th, when the hordes invaded the Capitol, the Republicans were there. They were in fear of their lives. These thugs were chasing the vice president and his family, the vice president, a Republican vice president of the United States, down the hallway. And yet, in order to hold on to power, we have to lie about it. We have to say Antifa was behind it when they know damned well it wasn't. That's what it's all about, holding on to power. And we are seeing that as it's reflected in some of the press, Fox, for example, but not the New York Times and not many other newspapers and media outlets. And so we have to worry that what happened when Hitler took over, that's how he did it, big lies, uh, Mussolini, big lies, 
that this is the kind of thing that this country is facing now, and it will play out in the media. That's all I got to say about that. Well, as it plays out in the media, Barbara, uh, if we're looking for a solution to this, is there a role that the media can play? If you're running a local newsroom, for example, what could you do about this to try to avoid this partisan split? Do you have any ideas? I don't have any huge solutions to the problem except to keep publishing the facts that are well attributed and hope that common sense and love of democracy prevails. And even on a a very small local level, a friend of mine asked me the other day, why do news reports routinely identify lawmakers, whether it's state lawmakers or congressional and and U.S. senators, why do they always routinely identify them by party when what they're Mm -hmm. saying may not really be relevant to what party they belong to? And their question was because they felt like we're automatically, we in the media are automatically getting people to say, oh, I'm going to agree with what this person says, I'm going to hate what this person says, based on what party we're telling them they're a member of. So maybe little small things like that matter? Not sure. Well, I think the four of us understand why those identifiers are there. They have nothing to do with partisanship. It has everything to do with being as specific as you can so your readers or listeners will know who you're talking about. But But you're you're assuming that, Ira, that that's that's the general reason that we always hold ourselves that was the reason we did it. We did it automatically. We didn't think of it. We're, we're trying to fully explain the person's positions, perhaps, but maybe we're actually coloring people's views. Well, this one's going to be from a good guy. This one's going to be from a bad guy. Well, you're saying that that may well be the result, and I don't disagree with that. But, you know, this is all part of a bigger picture that, you know, I'm about eight years retired, and I still it still hits me in the gut when I read stories about people disbelieving us. But to go back to Rex's initial question, I agree with Alan and Barbara. We have to keep doing what we're doing if we're doing it professionally and accurately. But I, I do think we have reached a point or long past the point where we have to reinforce with people what it is we're doing, and that's in the form of public service announcements and you know just blast the hell out of people in a way that describes our industry as as largely doing the work of the American people and as fairly as is humanly possible, because what's happening is those who don't agree with that, those who are quote unquote on the other side, are sure as hell saying so, and their message it seems to be getting through a lot more than ours has been, and that's partly because we haven't hit people over the head with it. I don't You're think... asking then for a public relations campaign to reinforce the values of, uh, yes, of the media. I... Yes, mm-hmm. and we've seen some of that. That the uh, I don't even know what they call it anymore. The Newspaper Association out of Washington used to send out you know full page ads that newspapers could run touting what it is we do. But yes, in short, I think that we need to take an approach that those of us who have been in the business a long time never thought was necessary, but I think it's necessary now. I think we need high profile opinion leaders who are perhaps not affiliated with media at all, to step up. And they might be politicians, they might be business people, they might be entertainers that could appeal to a wide swath of the public. I think we need those people. The the public service announcements, while not bad idea at all, 
But it's like when a bad parenting is, how many times do I have to tell you such and such and such? <laughs> and if you have to keep telling people over and over, it means they're really not listening. Well, but I agree with you. I think those people and those industry people that you cited, they would have to be a part of it. We have to find people who, quote unquote, the other side trusts and might listen to. Listen, it's, it may not work, but if we're just sitting around doing what it is we're doing, we know that that's not working based on the survey that Rex is citing. You know, I've talked to enough people on the Democratic side, the liberal side, who detest the press. And it's a very important point because, you know, the assumption is that the people on the other side are people who are not Democrats, who are not liberals. But no, because if the press is doing its work, it's going to call everybody to account. And as soon as they do that, there are many people in public office today, and I, I don't want to name names here, but who regularly tell me how deplorable the actions of the press are. I think it's true that public officials have always disliked the media, and there's an understandable reason for that. They think they're working hard to do the right thing, and we constantly call them out in what they would consider pot shots. And we aren't as good mm -hmm. at giving really great nuanced coverage because of the attention span of readers, because most people get information from uh, television, which by nature short circuits its coverage, let's say. So I can understand why a public official generally would be unhappy about the news media. Mm -hmm. But the studies that are out these days show that the partisan divide is really there, that trust in the media has generally been increasing over the past few years for Democrats, while trust continues to erode among Republicans. That's what Gallup and the Knight Foundation have found. And, and there's also some new data out that shows what's troubling. Young adults, 18 to 34, are more distrusting or, let's say, less trusting of the media than older adults. Mm. And they have less trust in the media than people their age 20 years ago. So we aren't even winning the war of trustworthiness with younger people who you might think would be less likely to have such strong partisan influence. I think I understand it, Rex. You know, the less you know, the more cynical you're going to be. And I don't think our young people really do understand what the values of the press are, what the, why the press is so important. And so you get increasing cynicalness, not only about the press, but about a lot of other things, politicians and other things, too as a result. Yeah. So, Barbara, you've been teaching at the University of Albany in recent years. you find that your students have any confidence in the credibility of traditional news sources? I wish I had been smart enough to ask them that question in the first few weeks of class. But my plan when I read this survey was for this coming week to ask this exact question of them and their trust. And, and so they're, say, 18 to 22-year-olds. Yeah. And I think part of it is, where do they get their news? Are they actually even following news? So well, when they say that they're not trusting the news sources, what news sources are they actually turning to to get that? I'm skeptical about some of these polls and what they, uh, what they say and what the people responding think ought to be the right answer. That's exactly right, Barbara. You, as somebody who was in the trenches in the academy for 40 years, I can tell you, that, and I don't think this has changed, although it's possible it has, since I left that august position. And that is that students sometimes give the professor what they think the professor wants to hear. So if you ask the question, how important is the news media in a class on news media taught by Barbara Lombardo, you may get a skewed answer that really doesn't represent their feeling. Well, I'm thinking that hmm. even the Gallup Knight Foundation polls, 
people are are answering it in a way that may not be quite accurate. Mm. You know, they were asking people of all ages of you know, how do you bridge the divide in our country, and and a lot of them said that if people covering news had different views from the people that they're covering, that it would be effective in healing some of this political division. And I think that's a lot of baloney. That sounds like the mm. right quote-unquote right answer, but I don't believe that for a second. We've already established that people like to read news that reinforces the beliefs they already have. Mm -hmm. And one wonders why, if we are so intent on losing our little newspapers, which we are, I mean, we know they're closing, thousands have closed, whether or not that has to do with the cynicalness that we see coming from not only young people, but older people, too, about the role of the press because they don't have a press that is quite that close to them. Well, that's right. I, I think mean, it actually we... comes from the digital revolution, that the uh, advertising that has supported the media is no longer there. That's a much bigger factor in the decline of local media, as well as the general decline of local communities around the country, which if you look out across rural America, you see the economic decline. So the loss of small newspapers and news deserts has less to do with the credibility question that grips the national media than it does with the economic economic change wrought by technology. And there just aren't the businesses on Main Street to support the newsrooms that used to be on Main Street anymore. And that's what is costing local media around the country, not a credibility matter. I just had to sell a, a car. My daughter had a car that she doesn't need anymore because she's in a city using mass transit. And to sell a car, you don't put an ad in your local newspaper anymore and wait for people to pick up the page to look at it. That's just not effective because when you're buying a car, you enter what you're looking for online and find it. So I think that that has a lot to do more than credibility. And that's reflected in the survey results, too. Younger Americans are much more likely to turn to a variety of news sources and care about the transparency and research and so on. Older Americans are likely to turn to one or two sources, like their local newspaper. That is also, I think, a result of the technological changes that we've seen in this country. Ira, you keep trying to say something here. You just said it more or less. I think what we overlook is that there is so much media. We've talked about it ad infinitum on this program between digital and broadcast and cable and satellite and streaming and you name it if you if you don't like the media you're watching today just start moving around you'll find one and people gravitate to their own comfort zones and is the case of younger people newspapers even like the New York Times are considered old and staid as TAID and they're going to find something that they're more comfortable with and that's I suspect that this is a problem that for us the mainstream media that's never going to go away I had to disagree with you Ira, as you know, and I hate to disagree with Rex, as he knows, but the assumption that they'll find something else is just wrong. My problem is I think they won't find anything. You mean people are not going to find to alternative uh, news? Turn away from news? That's right. I think the whole idea of an alternative news source, we may be kidding ourselves. We say, well, okay, they're not going to read the state old times and they're not going to, you know, read newspapers. They'll find something else. But that assumption that they're going to find something else, I think, is just wrong. My problem is I think that they're not finding anything else. And if they do, it's pretty amorphous, to put it mildly. Well, well wait 
a minute. You, you mean that you think young people are simply going to turn themselves off from the world? I mean, I'm suggesting that whether it's Facebook or whether it's, you know, the MTV news or whatever it is that younger people watch or listen to, they're going to find news sources and consume them. They won't look like the sources that you and I grew up on, but they're going to get their news from something. I don't know that in terms of public affairs, young people are paying as much attention as your generation, Alan. (laughs) Hold on, hold on, Rex. I have to feed my dinosaur, but go ahead. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, I think your generation, my generation, I think there was a time when there was a great deal more attention to public affairs, wasn't there? Or am I misunderstanding? Again, Barbara, you're in the classroom more often. Do kids quote-unquote, do these college students have an interest in the news? Is there much attention to public affairs at all? I think that varies today just as much as it varied, you know, 40-something years ago when I first got into the business because Hmm. this has been an issue forever, and I'm sure it was before I got into the business. Families followed the news a lot more in the old days, the local news, reading many newspapers and those sort of things. Those days disappeared. But, yeah, I think some students are very good about following the news. They know what's going on. Others, it's disgustingly and tragically, some of them are oblivious, even journalism students, sorry to say. Here's a big news story that we need to talk about, and this is a key factor, and that is there has been so much coverage in recent weeks, of course, of the disappearance and now apparent murder of Gabrielle Petito, a young woman grew up on Long Island who was missing, and it became a national pastime to pay attention to these stories. Now, after this having captivated the media, there is a lot of talk about the so-called missing white woman syndrome, the fact that media outlets have paid a lot of attention to Gabby Petito's missing while ignoring stories about people of color who have gone missing. This is a reality. Again, this is not the first time we've talked about this on this program Mm -hmm. because over the years we've seen this happen. Why does this happen, and is it something that we can do something about? Alan, you talked about it in your commentary earlier in the week. Yep. It has to do with racism. America is still a racist country. So when an attractive Long Island white female goes missing, you know, it becomes something that television channels will follow and the rest of it. By the way, Law and Order figured, Dick Wolf and the Law and Order figured this out a long time ago. They did a whole story on it. So, yes, I know we have racist tendencies in this country, and I think the fact that a black woman versus a white woman gets less attention is consistent with what I would consider American racism. I don't know whether racism is precisely the way I would describe it. I think under a broad definition, I guess it would fit. But I just think it's as simple as in most major media assignment desks are white people of a certain age, and they see a story like this, and it fascinates them. They say, this could be my daughter, and let's cover it. And they don't see the same thing with other stories and other people. I mean, not only are we talking about any number of black young women who have similarly been abused and disappeared, but indigenous people, people of other colors, that it's just, uh, I think, a knee-jerk reaction by people who sign these stories. And but it, that it, is are, racism. Are... That is racism, Ira. Yeah, I, I think broadly it is racism, but I don't think that they're saying we don't want to cover the black people. I think it's more we see this young white girl as somebody who we can relate to. So I, I don't disagree with you, basically. But frankly, I think these stories, none of them should get the coverage they get. But I agree. Unfortunately, we know that they draw readers and they draw listeners and viewers. And as long as that happens, they're going to keep getting covered. Look, we have individual well, television channels that do nothing but this kind of story. 
story. The American people love it, but you are so right. We, one wonders whether what's going on in Europe, France, England, people fighting uh, our relationships, COVID, whether this particular story, the Petito story, isn't getting more coverage or as much coverage as any of the major issues in the world, including climate change. You can't force Barbara. people to read things that are quote-unquote important stories. This story appeals to people because it's got romance, murder, sex, intrigue, missing people. And I am more inclined to agree with Ira how it falls into people's laps. I think that in newsrooms there's a laziness. And if a story falls in your lap that has the elements of a exciting, compelling story, and then other media are picking it up so that there's a competition involved, that you tend to jump on it. And I think, I could be wrong, I think that if this story had been a black couple, it might have gotten the same kind of attention in this country today because of all the other elements. Well, read Charles Blow in the New York Times on this very issue. This is not what's happening. Look, Barbara, in all fairness, there are black women who have been done in by black maids. We know it, and there has been almost no follow-up of this kind with it. So when you say it has all of the elements, except that one's white and one's black. Well, the other element is the laziness of the media, and maybe it's institutional racism within the media, too. But that laziness that this story fell into people's laps because social media picked it up. But there's a point that Barbara made, too, which is if you are reflecting the interests of your community in the media, you may say that it's the inherent racism of the American people, or you may say that it's the media consumers of community media are people who, quote, look like Ms. Petito. I do think that we need to recognize that in this society, we are not all born equal. And so blaming the media entirely for this rather than the society itself is not an accurate way way to look at it. The media is a reflection of society. We can try to fight it. So, for example, when the Washington Post described Gabby Petito as blue-eyed blonde adventure seeker, that was not relevant to the story itself. It unnecessarily racialized the missing person. It's just like what Ira said earlier about identifying a lawmaker by their party and what town they're from. It provides more information and makes the person seem more human. You can picture the person. So I don't know that it's irrelevant. Yeah. But the way they describe it does sound like, oh, no, a white girl's missing. Actually, WAMC had a really good piece a few weeks ago. I think it was on 51% about indigenous women. And part of the discussion was about missing people and how it never gets reported. So we have to be less lazy about reporting more of those, not just the ones that capture our imagination. Or, as Iris said earlier, maybe not reporting them so much at all. That is, how relevant is a single missing person? You're you're right, the Native Americans, a University of Wyoming study found that 710 indigenous people were reported missing from 2011 to 2020, that is in the last decade, in Wyoming alone. So there's so many missing persons cases. Maybe the problem is that we are devoting too much attention to that because it is of interest to readers, but aren't we supposed to be giving people what interests them? There is a larger overall story that can be written that puts this into context, but the danger is covering them piecemeal. There are just too many of them. You can't cover them piecemeal. I can recall in the old days on the police news in our newspaper, we used to print the shoplifting arrest. And at some point in time, we said, this is crazy. There's too many of them. They're not that important. So you eliminate that kind of crime in your coverage. And similarly, and sadly, there are hundreds and hundreds of these kinds of cases that are going on every day on virtually all of them. 
them we don't hear about, and every once in a while we get a Gabby Petito story. There is one other factor, if we have two seconds, is this morning as we speak, one of the morning shows pointed out that Americans have become mesmerized by true crime, whether it's the Dick Wolf shows that Alan watches or the podcasts that people listen to. This has become a cottage industry, and people love it, and that's another reason why you keep feeding the beast, because we're trying to find readers, and we're trying to find listeners and viewers. I just want to point out, I don't listen to them, and I don't watch them, Ira, but I know they're there. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're a Law, Law and Order guy. Yeah, I mean, I don't watch Law and Order, but, you know, I'll watch something else. There's plenty of stuff to choose from. Or, as my father used to say as he grabbed his twins' comic books, let's see what kind of garbage you kids are reading these days. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Let me take a look at that terrible stuff. Oh, my goodness. But actually, crime has always been a staple of the news media, right? It's not as though this is a 21st century phenomenon. It's something that has Absolutely. been captivating Absolutely. for Americans. Because, Absolutely. because of all the media, it's all over us. Absolutely. The Chartocks live in a house that was built for Judge Dewey, who was the presiding judge at the Lizzie Borden trial. And that was a long time ago, and it excited America. Did, absolutely. Gave her parents 40 wax. Actually, one last note to make here. We've been talking about race as a factor in a couple of these stories today. Diversity at the top of newsrooms is a real phenomenon that we need to mention. Of 12 new bosses in big media outlets in the last few months, 11 of those 12 new top editors, top producers, top executives, 11 are women. 10 of them are people of color. So diversity is really what's happening. And, well, three of the four of us on this program might not have such a good chance of getting these top jobs that we held anymore, given who we are, right? It's an interesting point. Yeah. It has that diversity filtered down to the to the lower levels. It's certainly a good development that there is diversity at the top, but are there still a sea of white male faces yeah. in the field? Ira, that's a good question, and some of the um, top execs of the outlets that Rex is talking about are saying that sometimes they still end up being the only one in the room who looks like them, so that they acknowledge there's a still an effort, no matter who's at the top, that we still have to work harder at diversity through the ranks. All right. That is the end of it for today. To our listeners, if you want to have a point of view shared, media at wamc.org is how you can communicate with us, and we would appreciate that. We'll share your thoughts on our next show. Barbara Lombardo was the last voice you heard. Ira Fussfeld. Alan Shartok, of course. I'm Rex Smith with a special gratitude to David Gustina, our producer, and to you folks for joining us this week once again on the Media Project. They all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. 